Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise. Hey folks, Preet here. I'm off this week, but instead I'm excited to bring you a special episode of Stay Tuned hosted by none other than my friend and Cafe Insider co-host, Ann Milgram. As the country grapples with the need for police reform, Ann sat down with Scott Thompson, the former police chief of Camden, New Jersey. Camden has become a national model for community policing, following its decision in 2013 to disband its police department and build a new one from the ground up. Ann appointed Thompson to the position of police chief when she was attorney general of New Jersey, and the two worked closely together to set Camden on the road to reform. In their conversation, Anne and Scott reflect on their history together, the challenges they faced in Camden, and the key decisions that led to the city's turnaround. And now I'll turn it over to Anne. Hi, all. It's Anne Milgram, filling in for Preet this week. The Black Lives Matter protests that have swept the country over the last few weeks have changed the national conversation about policing and its future. Just last week in Atlanta, we saw yet another fatal police shooting. That's why I felt it was so important to sit down with Scott Thompson. Scott retired as Camden police chief last year after serving in the department for over 25 years. I appointed Scott to the position of interim police chief in 2008 when I was the attorney general in New Jersey. And then I formally tapped him for the role before I left office in 2010. Under his watch, Camden went from being one of the most dangerous cities in the United States to becoming a national model for community-based policing. Today, the crime rate is its lowest in over 50 years. Scott has been recognized nationally for his achievements. He's a recipient of many awards, and his work was cited by President Obama, who visited Camden and met with Scott in 2015, calling on Scott to testify for the task force report on 21st century policing. So as we start to think about the big changes that need to happen in law enforcement across our country, there's simply nobody better to hear from than Scott Thompson. Welcome, Scott. So, Scott, um, Chief Thompson, we go way back. When do you do you remember when we first met in was it 2007? Yeah, I think I was in a room in which you came in and were addressing the leadership of the organization at the time. I think the first time that we actually spoke in a one-on-one fashion was in March of 2008 when we had a police officer get shot like eight or nine times in the line of duty. She was fighting for her life and you helicoptered down to the hospital to stop in and see her. And I was the only one from the, from the command staff that was there at the hospital. And you came down. I briefed you very quickly on the incident of what occurred. I don't think she was able to be spoken to or, or engaged because she was she was still in ICU and being worked on. But you, you went and spoke to her family. And then we spoke very briefly afterwards. The command meeting, was that the meeting that you have referred to as Bloody Monday? No, I think it was another meeting. It was one of the first ones that, that you had came to and just kind of observed. And it was the one in which the people were putting their best foot forward for you. 
And because, you know, everybody knew the attorney general was there. At that point in time, you were probably about 13 years on the job. You and I are both graduates of Rutgers, right? And then you you joined the force. Your time before that, you were, just talk a little bit about your, your work with gangs and narcotics. Yeah, I had, when I first came on the police department in 1994, I was originally assigned to the Uniform Patrol Division, just like every every new hire is. I did my time with a field training officer. I was assigned to the North Camden section of the city, the first district. And that has always been one of the most challenged sections of the city in many aspects, not just from a crime, but from the way it's geographically located. It's kind of broken off from the rest of the city. There's only really like three or four ingress egress points to that point of the city so when you're when you're in north camden you're kind of in a city within a city there was really strong drug gang violence at that time that's when a gang called the sons of malcolm x rolled the streets the initiation into this gang was basically like a random shooting murder and one night they had what was called test night where they were indoctrinating people into the gang and they went throughout the city and shot like six or seven people and killed four of them and a lot of them Almost every one of them were just innocent people. So that was that was the underpinning of what the dynamics were on the streets within the city and particularly within North Camden. So I did a few years in uniform. I then ended up being put on what was called the tactical force unit, which essentially was, you know, it would be like a specialized unit within the organization that uh, you worked steady night work, you worked six at night till four in the morning, and you just essentially ran the city, citywide jurisdiction. And you went from hot call to hot call. You didn't go to the disturbance of the peace. You know, it was the gun calls, the large fights, the crimes in progress. And generally they were, you know, that was the squad that would show up and would was supposed to bring order to disorder. The, the culture within the organization was there were a lot of heavy handed tactics. The attack force, when the attack force showed up, usually it was to bring an end to whatever the problem was. And the manner in which they did it was as quickly and as forcefully as possible. I did that for about two years. And then I went over to the narcotics unit. And, you know, in a city of nine square miles, we had about 175 open-air drug markets at the time. Camden was always a place where people came in from out of the city, right, to buy drugs? Yeah. So Camden in cities of 50,000 or larger is still to this day, the poorest in the country, the per capita income is less than $14,000 a year. And it's a a city of extreme poverty that's surrounded by communities of of affluence. Some blue collar towns, but several years ago, there was Money Magazine, I think it was Money Magazine, had named Morristown, New Jersey, which is literally like 10 miles up the road as the best place in America to live. And 10 miles down the road in Camden was the nation's most dangerous city to live. And so you would have about 80% of the drug buyers were suburbanites. They would come in, they were the lifeblood to the drug gang culture. So yeah, that, that was what fueled the problem in large part. When did you join the command staff? Like when, when were you first promoted? I think I got my first promotion. It was 99 or 2000. So I had about five, six years on the job. I had I had came out number one on the sergeant's list in the department because I came out number one. The then chief had given me the the choice of assignments, and I I elected to to stay where I was, which was with narcotics. And then I ended up I got promoted up another rank in narcotics, up to lieutenant. And then when I made captain, which would have been in probably 2005, 2006, 
I came back to, to work in the police administration building. So I had been detached out to working on task forces, working with the FBI and the DEA and the U.S. Attorney's Office and the State Attorney General's Office. I was working remotely for several years, but then I came back within the organization uh, overseeing investigations. And it was around this time that you and I first started to intersect. Yeah, you were a captain at the time? I was a captain. So in 2007, I was looking back at the stats. It was a very bad year in Camden. And just so folks understand, I mean, the AG's office, the prior Peter Harvey was the AG in 2003. He had superseded the Camden Police Department, which is really an extraordinary thing. It doesn't happen. You know, that was the only police department out of 600 plus departments that was superseded during my time in office that someone had had taken over. So I came in 2007, I was sworn in June 29th, 2007, and the police department was still under state control. And at first we had police directors. So we had people on the ground, they were civilians. And the idea had been that it would be better to have civilians. And that's sort of the, the model I inherited, better to have civilians who weren't part of the department, who were sort of overseeing public safety in the department. And of course, as you know, we went through, I think, two or three of those on my watch. And then one interim chief, I had decided that it wasn't working to have the outside civilian police director model. And so so we had another chief before, before we came to you. But just to sort of highlight, I mean, 2007, there were 42 homicides. 2008, it was an even worse year. There were 54 murders. And I think you talk a lot about how little the department was clearing crimes at the time. But do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I think people really focus. I certainly was struck when I looked last night at how many homicides there were. I'd known it, of course, at the time, but I was sort of brought back to that. But I was also struck by some of the comments you made about how bad the department was at, at sort of solving solving crimes. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing I think if I could just jump back, I think it's important for people to understand because when you talk across the country to different law enforcement folks, often I'd be asked questions of, of how you were involved with the way you were. And in the state of New Jersey, the New Jersey Attorney General is uh, has constitutional authority over all law enforcement in the state of New Jersey. So the, the New Jersey Attorney General is the chief law enforcement officer in the state, and with a stroke of a pen, will provide directives in, that that will set policy for all 550 police departments in the state. It's the most powerful attorney general within their own state as far as scope over law enforcement. You don't see that across the country in a lot of different attorney generals. Most of them have more of kind of a consumer fraud, civil aspect and are are really hands off when it comes to law enforcement. And I think that's that's mostly because AGs are elected, not appointed. So New Jersey's one of only four or five states that are political appointments in some way, or you know, New Hampshire's, I think that the legislature appoints. There are other states, Rhode Island is elected, but also is criminal jurisdiction, but most states don't actually have the criminal jurisdiction. And I think a lot of that is because they're politically elected, not appointed. And so the the criminal thing is much more localized in those in those places. In New Jersey, that's it's unified. There's one person who oversees all the police departments, all the prosecutors. It's really different. Mm. Yeah. So I just think that's important for context for a lot of people to kind of understand how and why you were so involved with local law enforcement. So when we look at at that point in time, the best way that I, I, I found to be able to describe the organization at that point in time was that you could be the, the greatest cop in the world, and there were some really, really good ones. And you could also be the, the laziest, most corrupt cop in the world. And we certainly had them as well. And, and therein was the problem. There, there was no standard 
that was enforced. There were no systems of accountability to ensure that people were performing at a, at a certain level. So the variance at which the organization operated on a daily basis was really to the individual's decision of whether they wanted to work or not when they showed up. And you would see that out on the streets as well. It was nobody ever went over policies and procedures. Nobody went over training. We had had five leaders in five years at that point in time. And the, the cultural current, the flow of water was really established by the labor union at the time. And their mindset was embrace the status quo. We'll circle the wagons and we'll just outweigh anyone that comes in and tries to give us direction. We'll litigate, we'll fight them, and they'll be gone soon. And history had shown them for that to be a successful strategy and tactic to employ. So that's what we were fighting against when, on that day when you put me in charge and we turned around and tried to, to start to institute change. So before we get to that day, and I think we should go into some detail on that day because it's a story that I love the way you tell it. I think you and I may have slightly different versions of it, but I think it'd be fun to or sort of, I think it'd be interesting to go through it together. But th- there are two things you said that I want to just follow up on a little bit. The first is how just this lack of accountability, the lack of training, the lack of policies. One of the things that I was struck by, and I don't know if you would agree with this framing or, or maybe frame it differently, was just how much policing was based on gut instinct. And because there weren't firm policies and there weren't clear standards, it was sort of like, you know, everybody could tell a story of one time on this street corner, there was a murder. So that's the most dangerous street corner in the city, even though if you actually really looked at where crimes were happening, that might not have been the truth. And so some of it was, you know, yes, some of it was lazy policing and some of it was just this like, almost willful blindness or or it's, it may, maybe even unintentional blindness of just really just believing so much. And I, I, you know, I've talked about this as like a money ball thing. When you looked at the um, Billy Bean and the Oakland A's, how it used to be scouts would go out and say like, I'll tell you, I can see it, right? I can see when there's a great pitcher or a great hitter. And then of course they pulled the data and the story was, was a pretty different one, right? That there is something to be said for that gut and instinct, but that it really has to be informed by data and understanding what's happening and whether you can do a better job and how. You know, I constantly, I read, I read that book around, I don't know, maybe some years later, but I remember having this moment of thinking, you know, part of our problem was and I want to talk about unions in a second, part of our problem was just this incredible culture and institutional kickback. And part of it was also just that we made it okay to police in a way that really was completely disconnected from the truth of what was happening in the community or what was needed in the community. And I I don't know if you would say it that way or a different way, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, I think part of the problem that existed then was that we didn't know what we didn't know. And the Camden Police Department was very insular. And it's not unlike a lot of organizations around the country. We thought because we dealt with very high levels and rates of, of crime that we were the experts. And nobody could tell us otherwise. There was no benchmarking within that organization, meaning we didn't go out and learn from other organizations. We, we thought that if we weren't doing it, then it wasn't best practice. We existed within this silo. And if you think about the organization itself, you know, people would come into this silo at, at a very young age, uh, you know, early 20s, 
we were taught a certain way of doing things. It was it, it was what was exemplified for us every day by by our you know people of senior rank and senior and positions. So we essentially thought what we were doing was right. And it's interesting, and I've seen this in other departments across the country as well. And this is what you experienced when you came in was that you know here you were as the attorney general sitting in a room watching and listening, and there were things that we were saying and doing that were just inherently wrong, inherently uninformed. And we were putting our best foot forward. We didn't know what we didn't know. It, it wasn't that, that it was even being cavalier. It was literally like we thought this was the way that you did things. And I remember you you said recently something about like the case clearance rate was something like 17%, right? So like the vast majority of cases were going unsolved at that time. Yeah, because there were such high levels of mistrust between the community and the police, our ability to solve crimes, uh, particularly the most egregious ones, shootings and murders, was abysmally low. To get people to come forward and provide eyewitness testimony to be able to reach a, a, a probable cause to make a charge was virtually non-existent. And again, you got to remember, this is back in the mid-2000s, late-2000s, where you know, cameras were just not ubiquitous. They weren't all over the place. And we would knock on the doors of people in the community, and we would ask them to tell us what occurred. And you know, you couldn't blame them looking back on why they, why they refused to cooperate. We had very low levels of legitimacy very low levels of being able to successfully remove people that were the influences of violence. And for, for people that have, have very little means and resources and relocating is not an option for them, they had to live and exist there. So they wouldn't like what was occurring, but it would be to their detriment to try to do anything different. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So in, in 2008, you were just deputy chief. And, and I think a lot of people don't understand civil service in, in states and in police departments, but civil service really drives how people get promoted. There are tests that people have to take. Officers have to take. You have to be at a certain rank. Then you take the test in order to be promoted. And the way it works across America is that as a rule, police chiefs are they're appointed by the mayor. They're politically appointed. But they're usually appointed after most police officers serve about 25 years on the job, and then they're eligible for retirement. And so what you usually see is police chiefs being people who are senior on the force. They have taken the test to be the chief, to be considered for chief, but they're promoted when they have 22 or 23 years on the force. They often serve you know, two and a half, three years, and then they retire. They go on to private security jobs or 
teaching or other roles in the community. But basically, like that's a really well-trodden experience in America. And so if we go back to 2008, you know, I could say that I had hired folks and I look, I had hired folks that came very, very highly recommended nationally to come in as police director. We then put in and let's just maybe tell the story of your promotion for a second. But I want to note that what happened with you and and I can't emphasize this enough. You were 36 years old at the time. You were incredibly young. You had 14 years on the job. And you would have basically been promoted to chief and almost, in my view, in no other police department in America. And the reason that we could promote you to chief is that the governor, Governor Corzine at the time, had done a state takeover of Camden, their finances as well. So a prior AG had taken over the police department, but then Governor Corzine took over the state finances and it was run by Judge Davis, who you and I both knew and loved and admired greatly and who sadly passed away recently. He he was able to basically, we, the civil service rules were suspended. And so the, a lot of things I would have, and hurdles that I would have had to have gone through I didn't have to follow. And that's important, I think, because the civil service rules have stopped, in my view, innovation from flourishing in departments. The most innovative officers are not the ones who are promoted. And usually people are promoted at the end of their career to be chief. They're sort of on their way out with an eye toward their future outside of the police department, not inside the department. And so, you know, I wasn't much older than you at the time. I think I was 37, maybe a year older, but you were really young chief. And it was really, it was just out of the norm. Before we put you in as chief, I had decided that I wanted to put in an interim chief in the city, that I wanted to stop bringing in outsiders. We had not had success with it for a variety of reasons, I think. And so I put in another chief. He came in. He was not long on the job. And we had a huge battle over... Do you remember what we battled over? The traffic unit. The traffic unit, right? And so this is a story neither of us really talk about, but I think it's worth just delving into a little. Do you remember my opposition to the... Well, can you tell us what the traffic unit was? Yeah. So it, <laughs> it was actually funny. At the time, the police department was like most troubled police departments in an urban environment. It had become very political. You know, there was favoritism. There were there were pet projects and pet units. And these favored individuals would get plum assignments and plum resources. And at that point in time, there was a, a traffic unit that was just receiving all of the the resources. I think it was a unit in a department that was the size of almost 400 cops. This was a unit that had about 20 officers. So they disproportionately had amount of officers uh, assigned to them. Each officer had a summer car, a winter car, and a motorcycle. All secondary employment would flow through them. They were given complete flexibility to arrange their schedules, their work schedules, which generally they did to accommodate secondary employment. And just so people understand the secondary employment, th- these are private security details. So like the trip, the AAA baseball team or AA, I can't remember, the, the baseball team in Camden would say, we want security here. The aquarium in Camden would say, we want security here. And people want to hire police officers so they could go in uniform. They then get paid by those outside places. They also continue to do their job. So they were still out doing traffic policing as part of a Camden police as a Camden police officer, but they were able to prioritize making this extra money through the, the private security details. Right. It was, it was moonlighting. The, they, they were, it was sanctioned moonlighting and they could essentially double and sometimes triple their salaries through this by using taxpayer resources. And again, and just the, the flexibility to be able to 
rearrange their own work schedule. They were not a part of any deployments that were or strategies for reducing crime. They essentially just did whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. And even as an outsider, which you were, and when you were looking at the table of organization and you would see, we had trouble putting cops out into the challenged neighborhoods in functioning vehicles. You know, some of these these police cars didn't have seats in them or they had holes in the floor. The lights and sirens wouldn't work. You'd be driving around with headlights out on your car. Radios wouldn't work. And then you looked at a, a unit and you saw they all had brand new vehicles. They had several of them. And you started to ask some really good questions. And uh, I remember in that meeting, the answers you were getting weren't good because there were no good answers. And I remember watching you get white knuckled. I, I saw the, 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 the grimace on your face as when some of the, the replies were coming in, kind of confirming what you had, had suspected. And you, and you composed yourself. You sat up straight in your chair and, and you said, Chief, I can't think of any other way to say this, but you do not have a traffic problem. You have a murder problem in this city. And I expect you to deploy your resources consistent with that. Are we clear? And the leadership in the room, basically, you know, they wouldn't even make eye contact with you. They were looking down and, and they said, yes, ma'am. And you said, good. And then you got up and pretty much concluded that meeting. And then it didn't happen. This was before you became chief, right? Is that your memory, Scott? Or was that the meeting I had with you? No, that, that was my memory. That was, and I, and I believe that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. Yes, that's what I remember too. Yeah, I, I remember that they had submitted to you another table of organization where they just, they changed the name of the traffic unit to something else, but not, all they did was just change the name of it. And when you, you peeled like one layer of the onion back, saw exactly what it was. And then I, I don't think you were interested in having any more conversations at that point in time. Joe Cordero, who was, had been the police director in East Orange, he was former NYPD, had been a chief in Massachusetts. He was my sort of head of law enforcement. He's you know strategically amazing at thinking about reforming organizations. And I remember sort of sending him down after this other org chart had come out to basically sort of like pull the papers and figure out firsthand what was happening and him coming back and saying, you know, nothing's changed, right? That basically it's it's sort of status quo, a different name, different number. And so, you know, I remember having this conversation with the, the sort of first interim chief and basically saying like, this is the decision you have to make, right? And this story in some ways encapsulates some of the fight to reform because some of the local political leaders were not in favor of the work that we were trying to do. Um, the unions were definitely not in favor of the work we were trying to do, but also the internal leadership of the department, you know, sort of like the institution itself was really pushing back on reform and also having somebody ask these questions of what works and what doesn't work. And so, you know, I remember having this conversation with him and saying the the first interim chief and saying like, look, you know, there's only one way, like, we're going to get rid of this unit. And, you know, are you with me? Or are you not with me? And you need to make this decision. And then, of course, he quickly said, you know, I'm out, right? Like he he resigned and he, he did less than a year as interim chief. I mean, it was very, very quick. And so we called you. Do you remember thinking, what were you, what were you thinking when, when we sort of, I think it was Robert Lugie in my office called you and said, come in the next day? Yeah. I think it's important for context too, that during this time when you were demanding the restructuring of the organization and the repurposing of personnel to be on the front lines combating the shootings and murders. If I remember correctly, that January, we had 12 murders or 11 murders in January. 
so we were on absolute record pace and your orders were, were consistent throughout. It was, you need to get every gun and badge out from behind a desk or from behind some whatever assignment that is not contributing to making the streets safer and they need to be assigned out into that forward position. And, you know, that wasn't a, a suggestion. That was an order from, from the attorney general. And it was pretty clear. And it was a time of crisis. You know, people were being victimized in the city at third world country rates. That's that there was an absolute moral imperative that was driving why you were doing what you were doing. It just wasn't change for the sake of change. So when that had occurred, I remember that day that I went into work, I was again, I was the deputy chief of investigations. And I was overseeing the assets that you had deployed down into the city. There was a tremendous amount of troopers and division of criminal justice investigators and prosecutors, investigators and Camden detectives. And I, I went in that morning as I always did. And I, and I briefed the leadership at that time. It was like, okay, understand. And then I left and did my day. And I think I was had, I was driving home and I think it was like seven, eight o'clock at night. And I got a phone call from somebody in the department and they had said to me, did you hear that the chief just resigned? And at the time, again, because we had had five leaders in five years at that point in time, most people were not staying more than a few months. So there was always these rumors going around about change and people being fired and people being brought in. And I just dismissed it as, as a bad rumor. And I, I told the person, I said, no, nah, that, that's, I just briefed them this morning. Nobody's going anywhere. And the person said to me, no, I, I got this straight from the HR department. The paperwork's been, been turned in. I said, like, wow, I, I didn't realize that. I then hung up the phone and then I called the leadership and uh, I said, I just, just heard that, that you're leaving. And uh and the exact uh, response was, yeah, F it. You can have it. I'm out of here. And I was like, oh, okay. And I hung up the phone. And then it was probably about 10 minutes later because I was still driving home. My, my drive from work to home is at that hour of the night, maybe 15, 20 minutes. So it was only a few minutes later. I'm driving down the same stretch of the road. And I look down and Trenton, New Jersey's calling me, which is the capital, which is where your office was. And I answered the phone and the voice on the other end said, Scott, my name's Robert Logie. Do you, do you remember who I am? And I said, yes, sir. I remember meeting you. And he said, uh, tomorrow morning, the attorney general wants to see you in our office at 8 a.m. Be here for that meeting and don't tell anybody you're coming. And I said, okay. And I hung up the phone and I remember thinking to myself, not even in my wildest dreams that I think you were going to name me chief. I thought you were going to ask my opinion of operations and direction. And, you know, to be quite frank, I just thought you were going to grab another trooper and put them over top of the organization. That was something that just seemed to be the pattern at the time. So I was kind of getting myself ready for that. I went up the next morning. I remember being brought in, taking up a back elevator, sitting in a room for several minutes, kind of by myself waiting. And then the door opened and I think it was Robert or somebody and they said, come on. And they walked me through the corridors and I walked into your big corner office that overlooks the Delaware river with the rolling rapids in the background. And I remember taking, that was the first time I was ever in that office. And I was like, just uh, everything was, it was kind of sensory overload. And I sat down and you walked in and you came in from like a side door and you just, you walked in, you looked at me, you said, hi. And as you were walking and sitting down, and it was like all in one motion, you said to me, tomorrow I name you police chief. I don't care what you have to do. The body bag stopped piling up. And I said, oh, okay. And then you said, what are you going to do? And I was like, well, I, 
And I'm trying to think. I'm, I'm completely flat-footed on at that moment in time. And then we started a conversation. I remember you also asking me, you said, well, what is your weakness? And I didn't fully understand what you meant. And I said, well, what do you mean? And you said, well, everybody's got strengths and weaknesses. What's your weakness? And I said, well, from I guess from a, a command perspective, I, I have no experience in administration or budgets or anything like that, procurement. And you said, okay, well, we're going to get you the help you need, but we're going to change things down there. And I, I said, okay. And I remember walking out of that office I had a kind of an eruption of emotions. You know, it was, I was, I I had a lot of fear. I had a lot of anxiety. I I just didn't, I like, I wasn't certain even if I was ready. Right. I mean, I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is all happened so fast. Like what, what happens next? And, you know, people fear the unknown and what laid in front of me was a complete unknown. So but yeah, that that was that. That's my recollection of uh, of our meeting that day. Yeah, yeah, no, mine, mine too. And I should say that you quickly dismantled the traffic unit, which I'm still very, very grateful for. And then, look that that year, I'll never forget that year, 2008 to 2009. The murders went down, crime went down significantly, and in that year, there were 34 murders in 2009. Still, way too many, but down from 54 the year before, down 40 percent, and just. Just I remember, and and I don't know what you're thinking on this, but I just remember that there was this huge invigoration in the community of sort of this idea of like the city was going back to being safe and would be safe for the people and that there was a huge amount of work to be done. But that I just remember sort of that to me always felt like this great moment of understanding what an important role the police department makes in the safety of the city and just you being able to sort of show that with all the work that we did in that one year, just, it really stands out in my mind is just sort of like that to me was, that to me was one of the watershed moments of all the people we were fighting. And there's a lot of conversations we could have about how we changed Haida, the high impact drug trafficking agency, you know, about how we went to battle with the FBI who only gave the city of Camden, the most dangerous city in America, two and a half violent crime agents, how there are countless ways, I think, in which we pulled in a lot of other federal agencies, DEA and ATF to help us. We moved out the state troopers who were policing the city instead of the uniform patrols. I mean, there were so many changes that we were made, but to me, like one of the biggest things was just that message that the city could be dramatically different in that very short amount of time. You know, I think it's also important to, to, to kind of mention here to, to encapsulate the time. I went from a lieutenant to being in the police chief position over an 18-month period. Now, when I was a lieutenant in the narcotic unit that we talked about, we did a high-level investigation into what is arguably one of, at the time, was one of the most violent streets in North America. And we had a poll cam put up, and it was a secret poll cam. Nobody knew, not even the Camden cops knew it was there. Uh, myself and a few other agents and, and investigators knew about it. But I remember reviewing hours and hours and hours of tape of this criminal drug gang that operated there and being embarrassed and amazed at the same time that the only time a Camden cop car drove down that street was when somebody got shot. And there was a lot of people getting shot. But absent somebody being shot, the police didn't patrol it. And I I remember that thought and how it bothered me. And that was something that I knew we had to address at some point in time. And I think that underscores and provides the example of 
one of the first dynamics that we changed when we did the immediate reorganization of the, of the department and pushed everybody out on the street. It was to create a presence wherein there was none. And prior to that, the most violent people in the city would operate with an absolute sense of impunity on the public streets, which has caused the overwhelming majority of the population, which are good people, to abandon public space and never leave their homes. So the disruption of shaking up the entire organization, pulling everybody out from behind the desk and putting them out on the street was in in large part, even before we put systems of accountability in place, what gave us the ability to, to start to have reductions in violent crime immediately. I think we should talk a little bit about accountability. I also just want to say, you know, we've all been talking a lot about the redeployment, the, the sort of reorganization of the police department in 2013. And just to sort of give a tiny bit of background for folks who haven't followed this lately, we left in, in 2010, Corzine lost the election to Chris Christie. We left early in 2010. You were the chief and the incoming governor had cut the state budget, not just Camden's budget, but you know, essentially the distressed city aid, which was a lot of money that went to Camden and Newark and other cities that didn't have the rateables, the tax base in the city to support public safety. And so you ended up having to fire, I think, over 160 officers as a result of those budget cuts. Crime went up to the, a high of 67 murders in 2012. And then this incredible thing happened where the county created a police force, and that was really approved by everyone to be led by you and to really let you figure out who you needed on your team, how to hire, how to fire, how to essentially police. And I think really a lot of the reforms that you and I are talking about from 2008 to to 2010 when we left, we did an incredible amount. But one thing that was really difficult was to bulletproof it from future change. And I don't think any of us understood the extent to which that one slash of the budget would just send the city into a spiral. And really all these reforms that you were working at they require officers on the street like you're just talking about. You know, if you have if you have half the number of officers, there's no way to put an officer on that dangerous street to just sort of be part of the community. Um, and so you then come through this transformation and we should t- we should talk a lot about 2013. But, you know, I'm so interested to hear some of what you you and I have talked a lot about. And I've heard you say it before, like that it was simple, but it's really hard and that accountability is one of the core pieces of it. I mean, Camden right now, it is it is the safest it's been in over 50 years. Um, I was there not long ago, as you know, to go to the aquarium. My five-year-old wanted to see the hippos and the penguins. And so we went there and it is just, I mean, I spent so much time on the ground in Camden. It is a different place than it was. And and that really is due to your leadership. And it, it's hard. And it was, I think, you know, one of the pieces of this is it was a roller coaster that really continued into not long ago. I describe it best as when, when we describe the concepts of what we did, they're simple. It's just not easy to do. It's, it's important to also know that the progress we were able to make over that two-year period from 2008, 2010 was challenged at every step in the way. My first six months as police chief under your cover of the attorney general's cover I had 100 grievances filed against me, and I believe it was eight lawsuits. If not for the state oversight and your, your empowerment, 
I would not have lasted as the police chief there. First of all, I would have never been appointed into the position. I, I just wasn't their person. Um, they didn't. They didn't know me. And if they, even if they'd known you, don't you think they wouldn't have supported you? Yeah. Oh no, because everything we we, we were disrupting the, the the status quo. I mean, look, it, you had everybody was up in arms over it. And when you're talking about Camden, it's gift as it's curse. It's very incestuous. Everybody's related to each other. Everybody knows each other. So you know, when you're starting to hold people accountable, that that's not welcomed with open arms. So, you know, I had, not only did I have my own workforce that was upset about it, but I had virtually all of their relatives and friends who were in other departments throughout the city also not happy about it either. So it wasn't like I was getting support from the infrastructure within City Hall in and of itself to boot, right? So it was being appointed by you and having that cover because they couldn't just if they could have just with one council meeting got rid of me, they would have. There's not a shadow of a doubt in my mind that would have occurred. But they couldn't because the state, the governor was providing 85% of the budget, and you were the attorney general, and you had to say. Um, I remember in the meeting in which they resolved me at your direction, I was essentially threatened by council president. He said, you've got the power of the attorney general behind you. If you don't reduce crime in one year, I'm firing you. I'm going to call for your firing. Do you understand me? And uh, I mean, it was it was overwhelming. But I think it's important to know that because it was, again, the progress that was made, and we made some really good progress. It was in spite of the institutions at the time. And really, when 2013 occurred and the opportunity presented itself to build culture as opposed to change it, I literally could do in three days – what would have taken me three years. Was that because of the union contracts too? It was. And it was also because you had new union leadership. You no, know, it wasn't. You know, A lot of people will call the dissolution of the, of the city police department as union busting. Well, the county within two or three months had a union, had the same union. It was the fraternal order of police. But the leadership was different. And the leadership was as interested in public safety as it was in the wellness and welfare of its own constituents, its members, the cops. I think that's such an important point. It was a tremendous facilitator. I mean, even look at what we were able to do last year. I mean, I was able to have write a use of force policy and have the ACLU, the community, and my union all sitting at the same table working working in accord. And it's now a national model. I should say that people are people are looking at it and adopting it across the country. You talk a little bit about like the three most important things were hiring guardians, not warriors. So just really changing the mentality of the officers. Second, community, becoming a part of the community, the officers on the street. You eliminated the patrol division to have everyone be a community officer, but really listening to and becoming a part of the community. And then third, de-escalation and really changing the way that the officers thought about things. So part of this, the shift, it feels to me like the shift to the county department put you in a very strong position to do all three of those things in a way that it might've been harder to do under the old model. I don't know if you think that's right. No, that's absolutely right. And I, I think that it serves as, as a foundation for everything that we did. And Truth be told, it's 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 you know I'm not saying that the Camden model is is the silver bullet, but in when we're talking about changing policing nationally, if those three things lie at the foundation, I, I think we can start to have meaningful conversation with people, and rather than just circling the wagons and trying to defend the indefensible, 
we were able to make significant progress with legitimacy with the community when they would essentially let me know at a very at very high levels of volume how displeased they were with the police. And rather than pushing back and arguing with them, I embraced it. And I said, you know what? I agree with you. And I need your help to fix this. And made them part of part of that process. I remember you gave your cell phone out at a community meeting and then you started giving your cell phone out at a community meeting. And that's such a symbol of really changing the us versus them mentality, right? Basically saying like, you have a problem. You don't have to go through all this bureaucratic stuff to lodge a complaint that may never get acted upon. Like they could come directly to you. And you and I also talk about this a lot too, that there's there's a difference between what's actually unlawful or against policy and what's right. And that there were times where people might be acting within the existing policies, but still doing something that was wrong. And so your willingness to engage on that, I think probably also sent a very important message to the community. Yeah. It was also, you know, it was putting systems in place that protect people from themselves. I I remember when I, the first time I gave my cell phone number out at a community meeting was back under when I, when we were together and it was in 2008, I went to a meeting and the, the people in the community did not like the way the cops were talking to them and treating them. And some of those cops were in the room. And I knew these folks because I had come up through the organization with them. And I also knew that our, our systems of accountability were ones where if there wasn't a recording of it, you know, it was the citizen's word versus the cop's word. And it was not sustained and there would never be any punishment or never, never to, held to account for it. Regardless of how many complaints came in, everyone was looked as though a, a, it was a one-off. You know, well, we can't prove this, so we just put it aside. We can't prove this, we just mark it not sustained. And never did even the organization look and say, well, how do 10 people that don't know each other all say the same thing, right? Even if I can't prove any one of them, the fact that there is 10 people that don't know each other that are making the same allegation, I'm going to give credibility to it. And I was, and that was something I never liked as a police officer when I was out on the street. I, I, I never thought there was a need to dehumanize people or treat people with, with disrespect. And I, I just, I, I, I didn't like that. And so when I was in a community meeting and people were telling me how, how ignorant and rude the cops were, and a lot of those cops were in the room. And you know, if you remember, again, back to our story, you know, I was not exactly the most popular person because all these folks are now actually out on the street working. I, I pulled out my cell phone and I held it up and I said, my number. And I said, call it right now. Call the number I'm giving you. Watch this thing ring. If any one of those cops that are standing against the wall, anybody that's wearing this uniform, treats you in a manner that's disrespectful or discourteous, you call me directly. Don't go to internal affairs. You call, you call that cell phone number any hour of the day or night. And that sent a really strong signal to the cops as well, right? That they were going to have to start to change the way they interacted with the people of the public because they didn't want me getting a phone call. So one of the things I think is interesting is that I was reading your list of the sort of three things, right? The Guardian's basically switching the department to be guardians, not warriors, this idea of community, community driven, community engaged and de-escalation. I was surprised you didn't have accountability on there. And maybe it's because you think of accountability as going through all of it. But to me, like, you know, I would sort of say community was just one of the most important things we did. But the other really important thing was this idea of, and I think you've done it extraordinarily in the past sort of decade plus, just this idea of holding yourself accountable both internally and to the community and to the safety and fairness in the community. And so like you dropped use of force complaints, you dropped crime rates. I mean, part of it, but all of it was by basically saying, 
you know, we owe this to ourselves and to the community to basically to be accountable. Well, it's it's a thread that runs throughout, right? I mean, it is we changed to to have the guardian uh, identity as opposed to the warrior. That requires the the changing of the internal metric system for performance. We had to stop rewarding officers on outputs and more on outcomes, meaning we had to stop determining who are the good cops by who wrote the most tickets and who made the most arrests, right? The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. That's what we had been doing for decades, and every year we got worse. Even if we were to statistically reduce crime, our relationship with the community was never getting any better. We were still viewed as illegitimate. And, and look, truth be told, what a lot of the things that that even I did very early on as chief, I learned through the process. I made a lot of mistakes, and I, I would I matured, and you know I continued to try to be more informed by the by the people. You know, you had, and I think it was maybe in 2012 or 2013. I can't remember, but you had introduced me to to Barry Friedman at the New York Policing Project. And Barry was was very instrumental in helping us with our use of force policy and doing community engagement and the like. And it was really in conversations with him. You know, he's one of the, the nation's leading experts in constitutional law. And he was talking to me about the consent of the people. And, you know, he educated me on that. And then it, it just it just shaped the way I looked at things differently. When I could start to be better informed of these processes. I think that it, it, it really gave us the ability to capture even more momentum. But so accountability is absolutely key. I think, and it's also part of our de-escalation. You know, our, our use of force policy is not, de-escalation isn't a suggestion. It's codified in our, in our department's policy. And every time we use force, doesn't matter whether the force is reasonable and lawful. If when we review the body-worn camera footage of the force that's used, if the officer's actions were not were not consistent with de-escalation, or worse yet, if their actions aggravated and escalated the situation, we would take action. A perfect example would be, you know, a cop uses force because somebody somebody punches the cop. Well, if you just freeze it at that point in time and say, well, the person punched the cop, therefore the cops using a taser or striking the individual back is justified, right? That may be so if you freeze it right there, but we're, we're rewinding the tape and we're going back and we're seeing the actions of the officer. And was the actions of the officer, were they provoking the individual? Were they the ones that closed the space? Was this, was this kind of a scenario that we, we call officer created jeopardy? Could it have been better handled if the officer's actions were consistent with our policies and training would force have even had to be used at all? And that's an educational process for the, for the officers too. And when you put systems like that in place, you start to protect people from themselves and they become better trained. They become more thoughtful in what they do and how they do it because you're not allowing them to, to exercise, the, exercise the excuses they would traditionally use. I wonder, Scott, when you think about sort of policing in America today and the need for reform and where we go from here. If you have any thoughts on that. Well, I believe that much like we did in, in Camden and in our transformations, I, I believe the burden is on us as police. I mean, at the end of the day, we may not like what's being said. We may not like the way we're being framed or painted in the media or the public, 
We may feel as though we're being vilified, but you know what? At the end of the day, we are still government, right? And we've got to be thick-skinned about this. And I think it's important for us to empathize with why people feel the way they do and don't be defensive. And it's not easy to do because still, the, the, you know, we're talking about human beings, meaning on the police side. So it's not easy to sit in a room and be blamed or, or be yelled at, or particularly if you feel as though you weren't the one that individually did it. You know, I, I would tell my cops that when we would do the de-escalation training and trying to really enrich them in emotional intelligence to say, you know, this is what you need to understand. You're 24 years old. There's no person in this room that was standing on the other side of the bridge in 1964 of Edmund Pettus's bridge. You may not be responsible to that, but the uniform you wear is responsible for that. So you got to understand that that is going to be an emotional that is very real. It's very visceral within people. So you can't take it personal when when they say and feel a certain way. So I, I do think that it's important that police leaders and governmental leaders, that they don't just circle the wagons and cross their arms. I think that there are a lot of people that have some legitimate reasons, uh, many legitimate reasons, to feel the way they feel right now. I think it's important to allow them to express it. I don't think it now is the time to try to offer explanations. I think that when you get through that process and it, it probably warrants some reconciliation, you know, I have found that sometimes it's, uh, it's, it's, in, it's important to say you're sorry to people and be willing to show that you're willing to change and offer them to be a part of the change. So we just can't listen to them and then tell them what we're going to do differently. I don't think the public's going to stand for that. Again, we got to get back to, to we, we need the consent of the people. So, so long as they have inclusion and voice in what things are going to look like moving forward, and I think that can be a very informative process. When we sat down with the ACLU and the community on use of force, you know, the ACLU had some pretty strong opinions about force. And I, I think that when we could sit down and they could tell us the spirit of what it was that they were looking for, and we could explain our concerns and thoughts and experiences, we were able to find common ground that, you know, I don't think either party walked away absolutely happy with, and you know, it wasn't a complete win on either side, but we're coexisting together in the same space in a way that, that that's, that's mutually acceptable. You know, I think about it a little bit as a, if you look nationally, I definitely feel like we see some of the us versus them mentality between the police department and the community. And in Camden, I feel like you got to the point of it's us and us, right? It's just us. And you've erased that division. One of the things you said, and you've said it a couple of times, and I would just put an exclamation on on this point, is how many enemies we had. I mean, it, it's really hard for me to square where the world is today with where we were when there was a senior political leader in South Jersey. I will never forget this. We were going to redeploy the force. And so I called all the elected officials in Camden. Some wouldn't take my call. Some screamed at me during those calls. There was a really senior person who basically said, look, I like you. 
you're not going to be able to do this. Don't use your political capital, right? I mean, there were people who were just downright against us and then people who just thought it was foolish of us to be spending the time and energy we spent there. But I know for both of us, it was our priority to to make the city safe and to change the way the police department worked. But we really had enemies. And I, I could not begin to convey to our listeners just how deep that went. And I want to just contrast that with last year, when you retired as the chief of police and there was a ceremony dedicating the police department building to you, right? In your name. And I, if you and I had talked in 2007, 2008, and someone had told either of us that there would be a building named after you in that city, I think we would have both, like, we would have fallen on the ground laughing because we would have thought it was so impossible that that would be the case. And I can tell you, there is not a single person I talked to in the state of New Jersey in law enforcement out in involved in community and activism who doesn't really give you such deep credit for the work that you've done there. And I just, you know, I personally, I'm, I'm so indebted to you. And I think your work has been nothing short of tremendous. And it gives me nothing but joy to see Camden held out as a national model for what policing can be. I don't know if there's anything in your mind that sort of stands out in your time as chief or sort of the transformation of Camden, but I will share the mic and let you sort of close us out with that. I I appreciate you saying that. And I do think it's important to use the word progress and not success because Camden still has tremendous challenges. But when you compare Camden against itself, it, it it is remarkable the amount of progress that has been made. I think the thing that I'm most proud of that we were able to do in this entire process was that Camden has changed internally in large part because we empowered the resiliency of the people that live there. We, we did not formulate a, a strategy that militarized neighborhoods. Uh, in fact, it was when it was the transition away from those types of tactics that really gave us the greatest amount of progress. And I also think that uh, if there's a lesson for other uh, cities in the country, it's that in 2013, part of the reason why we were able to make so much progress in such a short period of time was because you had you had all the parties. You had, you had a bipartisanship between the state of New Jersey, which was Republican leadership, Democratic county and city governments that were all rowing in the same direction, which rarely happens. And that created a current, a hell of a current for us. Also, I I think it's also very important to acknowledge that there were significant changes in the school system in Camden. I remember being asked one time when murders were high in like 08, 09, uh, back when we first started, a reporter asked me, what was I going to do to, to reduce murders? And that same day, the state of New Jersey published a report that ranked the 370 some odd high schools in the state of New Jersey in the bottom five were Camden schools. And I, I should I looked at that report and I said to the reporter, if you increase my graduation rate 10%, you'll reduce the murders 20%. My point being in that was that a lot of the challenges for extremely destabilized communities are, you know, crime is a symptom. And at some point you got to go upriver and start to address the root cause issues in public safety. One of the things that, that President Obama held up when he came to Camden as an example of the community policing was our use of ice cream trucks and our use of pop-up barbecues in neighborhoods. And I think it's important. The police even bought two ice cream trucks with drug forfeiture money and in the summer drove them into some neighborhoods where gangs had taken over. 
and drug dealers were, were peddling on the streets and otherwise the street was empty, they drove those ice cream trucks, planted them there, and had police officers giving out free ice cream. And suddenly the community started coming out and the drug dealers started fading away. All of a sudden the, the, the street corners where criminals were dealing drugs had police officers dishing out free chocolate chip. But in all of these efforts, the goal was to get the community involved before a crime takes place, to build trust before a crisis erupts. And officers then feel more welcome to their communities. Citizens are more likely to cooperate with the police. And that makes us all safer. And we discussed this when he visited in May of 2015, was that understanding my community and knowing that as challenged and as poor as my community is, that it's a food desert. And if the idea was to get people to populate the streets so that we could suppress the flagrant criminal activity, having a police officer be able to provide many people, arguably probably the only warm meal they're going to have that day, creates an entirely different dynamic in which they start to see each other and communicate with each other. So, you know, us giving out ice cream, us doing the pop-up barbecues, us doing uh, you know a lot of our mentoring within the neighborhoods, they weren't just for photo ops. It was, it was very specifically tailored to address the deeply rooted issues that, that vex the city and many neighborhoods. So you know, it's that kind of thoughtfulness that really local leaders know better than anyone. And you know, may, maybe it's not an ice cream truck, maybe it's something else. But I, I do think that that's really important for people to understand and that we were just not trying to do feel good. Let's take a picture here so that, I mean, there was, there was actually, there's a rhyme and a reason for, for a lot of the things, for everything that we did. It may all begin with public safety and public safety may be one of the most important variables in the entire equation, but it still is just one variable and other aspects need to be addressed as well. It feels to me like that's some of the most important conversations that you and I have been having for a long time, but we're only now starting to have it nationally in the way that I think is important. And also, and I know you said this, this idea of, you know, what should the police be out there doing? And you talk about, you'd be willing to give up 10 officers for more boys and girls clubs, right? Just this idea of like, how do you work as a community for safety? And it's not just the police. And I think you know, this is a really important conversation about reform now that, in my view, we've never had before. Scott, you're amazing. I'm lucky to call you a friend and a colleague. Thank you, General. Thank you, Chief. To gain access to the exclusive weekly Cafe Insider podcast, which I co-host with Preet, head to cafe.com slash insider. Right now, you can try a Cafe Insider membership free for two weeks at cafe.com slash insider. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669 669- 247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to stay tuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior audio producer is David Tatashore. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Curlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Calvin Lord, Noah Azulai, 
and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.